Hello, this is William Fank, and this is Krista Getting It Internet Radio. Today is Friday, July 21st, 2017. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Melissa and I have been home from our road trip for a week, and I'm not even trying to get caught up with some of the tasks I have at hand, so I am not going to start back on my 1 Timothy commentary for at least one more week. I think I'll be able to get to it next week. Tonight we are going to present part 12 of our special notices to all who deny to seed line. Based on, of course, Clifton Emmerheiser's original essays. We had, um, before that, before we took this long road trip, I had um, gone off to the to the storage space that I have to rent, and um, dug out from my prison correspondence some of the letters that I had received or exchanged with people such as Eli James, Lorraine Swift, some of the mail I received from James Wickstrom, who claims not to really have known me, but he sent me mail in prison, and. A couple of other people, Gene Snyder, who was very close to um, both Lorraine Swift and Bertrand Compré and his wife for many, many years. And I'm going to um, eventually publish a lot of these letters that I received online. I don't know that there were... um, I made it a habit to photocopy at least most of the correspondence that I had with Clifton Emmerheiser. I have photocopies. I have his um, letters to me, of course and photocopies of at least most of my letters to him. I did that because a lot of the things we exchanged and a lot of the things we discussed, I had planned on, or I actually have used, in future essays. For instance, the essay on the Phoenicians, which is, that's posted at Christogenia Today, was based on a lengthy exchange of letters I had with Clifton Emmerheiser back in um, 2000, I think, and maybe even, I think the first one was in 1999. So, at Christa this week, I was able to post the first two letters that I received from Eli James. I have done this because for six years now, Eli James, whose real name is, of course, Joseph November, he's been telling people that I sought him out when I got out of prison, when I was released from prison. And the truth is that I never sought out Eli James. The letters prove that he sought me out. And he actually did look for me for quite some time until he finally mentioned me to Ralph Daigle, who informed Eli that he knew me personally, which of course he does, and he was in prison with me, right? (laughs) And Ralph Daigle gave Eli James my address. Eli James first wrote me in April 2006, I returned a letter to him, and he wrote me again in late May of that same year. I have another dozen, 
I'm guessing maybe a dozen letters from him. I don't know if I'll post them all, but I thought it was important to post these. If for nothing else than to prove that once again, E.Y. James is a liar. And I should go dig out some of the recordings where he had claimed that I chased him down when I got out of prison. He's just full of it. He's he's just a blatant, bold-faced liar. So I had to do that. If you're at the Christoginia website, or if you go to the Christoginia website, and scroll all the way to the bottom of the page, I know it's a long page. There's a lot of stuff on my site. I can't help that. Scroll all the way to the bottom of the page. At the very bottom, there's a menu. And that actually has a lot of links that don't really show up anywhere else on Christagenia. And one of those links is letters. Or you could just go to christagenia.org slash letters and, and you'll be redirected there. And that should work. I have often said that we cannot read the prophecies of God and foresee the future. And I stand by that statement today. The prophecy was not given so that we could foresee the future. But it was given so that we can look back and see its fulfillment and know that God is true. However, what we can see in the inspired prophecy of Scripture is the expectation we should have as Christians. Thereby knowing what our Christian expectation should be, we can live our lives accordingly seeking to edify one another and to please Yahweh our God. The old adage is true. The Christians must live in the world, but should not be of the world. Our expectations must be in the salvation of our God, and not in any salvation which is of the world, which once and again has led only to our further enslavement. Throughout the series of podcasts, I've been picking on Ted Wyland, and rightly so, because identity Christians must learn to see through this charlatan. Of course, much of Clifton's original critique in these special notices is in answer to Wieland's lies and misinformation concerning 2C line. But his error is far deeper than that. Here is the perfect example of someone who is supposedly awakened to our collective plight as a people, yet has his head so firmly buried in his own hinder parts that he cannot see the conflict of interests in his own opinions. Now aside from what Clifton has already done, I would not give him any attention as he is no different to me than the rest of the American clergy, except that he calls himself a Christian identity pastor. And as he does, he leads a fair portion of the sheep down the path to perdition. So for this reason, I must continue to chastise him. As I got ready to prepare for this presentation, I went to check out Ted Wyland's Facebook page. I actually even trolled it some. I went to check it out to see what he has been saying recently. He does have a lot of decent-sounding rhetoric about Yahweh and godly government, 
but his general attitude exhibits a desire to reform the government we have rather than to appeal to Christ as king. So I found a post where Wyland expressed concern over so-called revolving door issues at the Federal Department of Justice. And it was attached to an article which speculated as to whether Wall Street was either bullying or bribing federal prosecutors. Then there was a post promoting a book reviewed at a political website about gratuitous government spending or so-called pork barrel legislation. Wyland used this to launch a diatribe against the American Constitution, which he seems to make an almost daily habit. Not that we like the Constitution. Then there was something he posted about government-controlled health care, and something else about tax reform, where Wyland said, let's talk about real tax reform, biblical tax reform. And now I must ask a few questions. But after making a couple of comments, I was promptly banned from Wyland's Facebook page. So he is obviously not going to entertain my inquiries directly. I bet he doesn't entertain them at all. But he is nevertheless going to have to live with them, and eventually he will be confronted with them, one way or another. Why should Christian identities care about the potential job retention of federal prosecutors? Who... Well, I won't go there. Who gives a damn? And why should we care about health care reform, or tax reform, or legislative reform? Tax reform, really? Did Yahshua Christ ask Pontius Pilate how secure he felt in his job? Did Yahshua Christ ever advise the Romans to lower their taxes or even complain that they were too high? Christians have been engaged in American political dialectics from the very beginning as they slide further and further down the road to hell, continually moving the barricades back a few steps at a time in their lame attempts to defend the ever-changing status quo. No matter how much we complain about the Constitution, it is irrelevant in relation to the current federal tyranny, which is propped up by international banks and global corporations, and which only hides behind the Constitution for a mask of legitimacy. Real identity pastors should not be preaching engagement with the enemies of Christ on the terms which those enemies have dictated. The ballot box is meaningless so long as international Jewry controls the currency and the media. But in any event, the ballot box is entirely meaningless, meaningless in the eyes of Yahweh our God since only He can be our rightful ruler. Real identity pastors should be educating the sheep as to the true nature of the wolves who are running the sheepfold and should be engaged in preparing the sheep for the inevitable moment when the government of the wolves totters so that they may hear the call to arise and thrash. But, if we cannot tell the tares apart from the wheat when that moment comes, how can we effectively engage in the battle of the harvest? The harvest of God 
will not happen at a ballot box. The harvest of God is not an intellectual dispute to be engaged in from pulpits or Facebook pages. Rather, it is a bloody mess which is to come upon us whether we are ready for it or not. Those of us who are not prepared may be found off wandering in the marketplaces like wayward virgins frolicking with the enemy upon the coming of the bridegroom. In Revelation, in chapter 14, we read, And I looked, and behold, a white cloud. And upon the cloud one sat like unto the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him that sat on a cloud, Thrust in thy sickle, and reap, for the time is come for thee to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. And he that sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. And another angel came out of the temple which is in heaven, he also having a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, which had power over fire, and cried with a loud cry to him that has the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in thy sharp sickle, and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. And the angel thrust in his sickle into the earth, and gathered the vine of the earth, and cast it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden without the city, and the blood came out of the winepress, even unto the horse's bridles, by the space of a thousand and six hundred furlongs. Blood to the horse's bridles. That does not sound like tax reform, or health care reform, or legislative reform, or any other type of reform. Blood to the horse's bridles. From the very word of our God, that is just what Christians should expect. And that is what we should prepare for. So that when the, the inevitable day of wrath comes upon us, it is not our blood which is found flowing in the streets, but the blood of our enemies. Reform of anything in these modern governments of men is not possible, as government itself is only a punishment from God, and as Christians have no political solution. The model government was not the kingdom of David. Rather, it was the period of the judges when Yahweh himself was king and the unchanging law was his only legislation. When Israel demanded an earthly king, it was a sin and Yahweh gave them one for their punishment. The evil forces summarized as Mystery Babylon have ruled over us in our punishment controlling whatever governments men have formed. God doesn't care about your damned constitution. The Bible tells us that Babylon shall fall and Christians must be prepared to hear the call when it does, which is to come out of her, my people, that you be not partakers of her sins and that you receive not of her plagues. That great harvest of the grapes that we read about in Revelation chapter 14 
That's not going to be conducted by angels sitting in clouds. That's allegory. That's going to be conducted by his messengers here on earth. Where in Revelation chapter 18, when Babylon does fall, we read, Reward her even as she rewarded you, and double unto her, double according to her works. In the cup which she has filled, fill to her double. This is the call to arise and thrash, which we read of in Micah chapter 4. Arise and thrash, O daughter of Zion. This is the Christian expectation. For I will make thine horn iron, and I will make thy hooves brass. We're not going to be like that. We're not going to be iron and brass when we're a bunch of little sissies calling for tax reform. And thou shalt beat in pieces many people, and I will consecrate their gain unto Yahweh, and their substance unto the Lord of the whole earth. The sooner Christians believe the word of Yahweh our God, abandon their lame attempts to reform the governments of men, and accept Christ as their only king and lawgiver, the sooner we will be able to arise and thresh and destroy all of our enemies as the word of Yahweh promises. But clowns like Ted Wyland only seek to perpetuate the status quo, which is our enslavement and their own cowardice and comfort. Real Christians should have no care for such clowns. We may not be able to swing the sickle today, but the day is coming, and we must be ready for that day alone, as that is our only solution. There is no future in the reform of any bureaucracy or political entity. To hell with reform! Political arguments and calls for political reform only serve to distract Christians from the real purpose which they should have in Christ. Looking at history, we are already in Yahweh's day of wrath and many of our brethren are already fallen victim to the enemies of our race. Ted Wyland enables them with his bullshit. Christians must both pray and work for whatever it takes to educate our own people, the wheat of the tail of the field, so that they may stand in the day of Yahweh when it comes upon them, and it is only a matter of time. It will come upon them. But it is only what we call two-seed line, by which we can know with certainty the nature of both the wheat and the tares, whereby we may swing those sickles righteously. Ted Wyland also refuses to understand that. And for that reason, perhaps he is where he belongs, as a rodeo clown, in a political circus full of bull. But when will identity Christians begin rejecting such clowns? With this, we shall commence with our presentation of Clifton Emmerheiser's Special Notice to All Who Deny to Sea Line. Part 12. Clifton opens. And he says, As I have stated previously, we are at war. 
I am not referring to our present so-called war on terrorism. And we must note that this was originally written in very late 2001, probably in December, so far as I can determine. So George W. Bush's war on terror was just getting off the ground. While the current war concerning terrorism is taking on large proportions, it's only a mere skirmish in comparison to the great 7,000-year war of the children of darkness against the children of light, foretold in Genesis 3.15. Every night, white women are going to bed and waking up in the morning pregnant by a member of another race. In this greater war, we are taking tens of thousands of casualties nightly. While this large-scale war is going on, the church sits idly by, claiming it's Christian in nature. And they assert everything is alright, as long as the other person has been saved. And in the face of this great peril, the anti-sea liners refuse to point out the true enemy. They insist it's all a problem with the flesh or something spiritual. Oh, they will recognize that Genesis 3.15 speaks of one seed in the form of the Messiah, but stubbornly deny the serpent has seed. I will repeat again, if there was no seed of the serpent to bruise the heel of Messiah, then we have no redemption. Now I would say that's a very dangerous and irresponsible position. One person wrote me a letter and said, It's 99.9% religion, not race, evidently referring to the scripture itself. That also is a most risky position. I wrote him back, Clifton wrote him back, and told him he could point his sword at religion, but I would point mine at a walking, talking, breathing, genetic enemy. I don't know how he gets religion out of seed. Furthermore, he also had much training at a seminary. Well, the subject of seminary is what we are going to deal with in this paper. One thing I have noticed in the Anglo-Israel message is, is that many who have been trained in seminaries are the very ones who take a position against two seed lines. And Clifton is searching for an answer as to why that may be in this paper. <coughs> Excuse me. Of course this is true, that denominational Christians, and even many of them, who have found Christian identity, continue to believe that Yahweh God, the prophets, Christ, and all the apostles meant one thing while speaking another. So, with clowns like Ted Wyland, seed does not really mean seed. A father is something other than an ancestor. A bastard is something other than a mongrel, and so on, perverting the language of scripture ad infinitum. But when a farmer plants a field with the same authentic heirloom seed that he has always used, and a portion of the crop turns out bad, the seed itself cannot be blamed for the disaster. As Christ himself had said, the tree is known by its fruit, and a good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. 
in Matthew chapter 7. Therefore, when Christ says in Matthew chapter 13 that the field is the world, the good seed are the children of the kingdom, but the tares are the children of the wicked one. The idea that children of the wicked one are of the same seed as that good seed is precluded in the language used by Christ. So where Christ said of the tares that the enemy that sowed them is the devil, we must understand that not all men have the same origin. And where it says in Malachi that Judah has profaned the holiness of Yahweh, whom he loved, and is married the daughter of a strange god, we must understand that there was something about the nature of Judah's wife which precluded her from conversion. That strange God is the same father of the opponents of Christ who claimed God is their father, but were told that it was not so. There is not one shred of evidence in Scripture that Judah's wife, the daughter of Shua, did anything wrong or wicked or sinful which would make her the so-called spiritual daughter of a strange God as if that were what was meant. Ted Whelan doesn't have a leg to stand on. However, there is the fact that she was a Canaanite and biblical evidence has it that the Canaanites were race-mixed with Kenites, Rephaim, and other non-Adamic tribes. So the children which Judah had which that, with that wife were not considered heirs to Judah's to, to Judah's entitlement. Rather, when Pharez and Zerah were later born, it was important to mark the firstborn child because that would be considered the legitimate son, the first legitimate son of Judah. The only thing that would make Judah's Canaanite wife, the daughter of a strange god, is that she was of those tribes which were not descended from Adam, at least in part. There are people here which Yahweh our God did not take credit for having created, plants which the Heavenly Father did not plant, as Christ informs us in the Gospel. The opponents of Christ claimed to have Yahweh God as their father, and Christ denied them that claim. The Edomites of Judea were also descended in large part from the Canaanites, and would have therefore been the children of a strange god, just as Judah's wife was the daughter of a strange god. If they have a different father, then as Christ said in the parable of the wheat and the tares, they were planted by the devil. The devil could not create men from nothing but he could plant tares among the wheat by encouraging race mixing. And that is the sin of both Genesis chapters 3 and 6. And if there are two fathers, the son of man and the devil, then there must be two sea lines, as it is explained in Genesis 3.15. And Revelation chapter 12, along with the epistles of Jude and Peter, inform us that the other seed line has its origin in the fallen angels. This is rudimentary scripture, which the anti-seedliners refuse to even discuss, 
Therefore, it is apparent that they have an agenda and no care for truth. Clinton continues discussing the refusal of anti-seedliners to see the truth from a different perspective. And he says, I believe the reason for this is because in the various church seminaries, the students are taught a religious system called hermeneutics. We will take a look at that system in this article. I think you will find it doesn't have a very commendable background. The greatest problem with people coming into identity is that they tend to bring with them their former church's dogmas. With the identity message, one must wipe the slate entirely clean and reconsider all things from a new perspective. It seems like everything is just 180 degrees from which we were always taught. Our Savior instructed us that we must become as a little child, or we are not fit for the kingdom of heaven, in Matthew chapter 18. A child has a clean mind, without any preconceived ideas. And of course, a good child would not challenge the authority of Scripture. Even Paul had to go to Arabia for three years to get rid of, or cleanse his mind of, his Phariseeism as he described in Galatians chapter 1. The problem in identity is that a lot of people haven't been to the desert yet, especially former seminary students who keep patching over scripture, attempting to put new wine or new teachings into old bottles. The example Christ made in Luke chapter 5. And while we cannot agree with Howard Rand on many things, he was one of the first Christian identity writers to actually break new ground in Christian academics. And he was a lawyer, not a trained pastor. Rand was evidently one of the first to realize, even though he realized it rather late, that the modern Jews were actually Edomites and Canaanites, and not Judah, thereby breaking with his British Israel predecessors. Bertrand Compare then took Rand's teachings to a new level, and he was also a lawyer, not a pastor. Whatever we think of lawyers, they are trained to look at things from different perspectives, and to analyze the merits and possible shortcomings of each position. But generally, pastors are simply taught what to think and not how to think by their various denominations, and very few of them break out of that mold, especially when they earn a comfortable living at pastoring. If you've ever studied New Testament translations like I have, you'll find that some translations, in fact most translations, simply repeat mistakes that were made in the King James Version when that was translated. And they repeat them again and again and again in spite of the fact that the Greek has a plain contrary reading. They repeat those mistakes because their doctrines are more important to them than translation. And I could probably walk through my translations, explain the Greek, compare it to 
other translations and show that that's exactly what happens over and over and over. In fact, I have done that to a great degree in the New Testament Bible com- commentaries that I've been offering here at Christogenia since 2011. And I'm not quite three quarters, three quarters of the way through that task. Continuing with Clifton, he says, in getting into this topic about hermeneutics, I will start first by quoting the Encyclopedia Britannica, 9th edition, 1894, volume 11, page 671, the topic being Hermes, and the Greek word hermeneutics, which actually means, comes from a word hermeneia, which means interpretation. A hermeneia is an interpretation of something. That word does come from the name for Hermes. The name of Hermes seems during the third and following centuries to have been regarded as a convenient pseudonym to place at the head of the numerous syncretistic writings in which it was sought to combine Neoplatonic philosophy, Philonic Judaism, and Kabbalistic Theosophy and so provide the world with some acceptable substitute for the Christianity which had, at that time, begun to give indications of the ascendancy it was afterwards to attain. In other words, in the third and following centuries of the Christian era, when the pagans observed the Christianity was going to prevail in the West, and it was unstoppable, they decided to layer on top of it tons of philosobabble, tons of bullshit. And they used the name of Hermes to do it. Philonic Judaism, or the variant of Judaism found in the writings of Philo, or Philo, sought to syncretize the pagan Greek myths and philosophies with the Old Testament scriptures so as to validate paganism and to make a vain attempt to reconcile the two contrasting traditions. I would consider Philo to be a pronostic or at least a close philosophical forerunner to what became known as Gnosticism. However, it is also fully apparent that both Philo and the Gnostics were heavily influenced by Platonism. Later, Neoplatonist writers would turn on and attack Gnostics for what they considered to be heresies and perversions of Plato's philosophy. Much later, the authors of the Kabbalah drew from Neoplatonism and also from other older mystic and Gnostic traditions of the East. But the Kabbalah itself only dates to around the 12th century. Clifton continues, The connection of the name of Hermes with alchemy will explain what is meant by hermetic sealing and will account for the use of the phrase hermetic medicine by Paracelsus, 
and also for so-called hermetic Freemasonry of the Middle Ages. And of course Clifton is still quoting from the Encyclopedia Britannica. And I would say that the term, the term Middle Ages, as it is used here in this Britannica article, really can only refer to the 17th and 18th centuries. This hermetic Freemasonry certainly seems to be what we have seen referred to as speculative Freemasonry in our series of podcasts on the Jews in medieval Europe and the Protocols of Satan. In those presentations, we hope to have established that Jewish mysticism in the form of the Kabbalah had entered into Christian scientific circles with the help of men such as Johann Reuschlin and John Dee, two of the men who popularized the Kabbalah in their respective Christian scientific circles in Germany and in England. Reuschlin did this in Germany even before the Reformation and John Dee brought the Kabbalah to England only a few decades later. Paracelsus was a Swiss physician and alchemist of the mid-16th century who was born about 40 years after Reuschlin. Both men were Renaissance humanists. Paracelsus was tutored by Johann Trithemius, who also tutored the famous alchemist Heinrich Cornelius Agrippa. We also established in our Jews and Medieval Europe in part two of the series titled John D. and the Kabbalah that both Agrippa and Reuschlin were primary influences on John D. and his having brought the Kabbalah to England. These men can certainly all be connected as an author named Noel Bran says in his book Trithemius and Magical Theology a chapter in the controversy over occult studies in early modern Europe which was published by the State of New York University Press in 1999 says that Johannes Trithemius the Benedictine he was a Benedictine monk was a notable monastic humanist. He studied at the University of Heidelberg, where he was in contact with a number of illustrious German 15th century thinkers, among whom were Johann von Dahlberg, Conrad Keltis, Jacob Wimfeling, and Johann Reuschlin. So there is a clear line of contact through which fascination with the Jewish mysticism of the Kabbalah had spread from Johann Reuschlin to men such as Trithemius, Heinrich Cornelius Agrippa, Paracelsus, John Dee, and throughout the schools and early academics of the Reformation. This is the foundation not only of modern seminaries, but of modern academics in general. This thing had actually riddled the universities of Europe in the 16th and centuries, 17th centuries. And it goes back further than that because Reuschlin had his own influences in people like Pico de Mirabella and, and 
the denizens of the earliest secret societies. If I got Pico's last name right, I don't know. It's it's something like that. I think it might even be... No, I didn't mention it here in these later notes. I didn't. I thought I would. This has been a necessary digression, as Clifton is not wrong to connect hermeticism with Kabbalistic theology. The Wikipedia page on Paracelsus, who was named in this article, whose medical contributions were recognized by the Royal College of Physicians in London, I think the year was 1619, so they certainly knew of his writing at the time that the King James Version was being translated, and whose books were widely read in the 16th and 17th centuries. The Wikipedia page on Paracelsus says that Paracelsus held a natural affinity with the Hermetic, Neoplatonic, and Pythagorean, and that should really be Neo-Pythagorean, philosophy central to the Renaissance. And these things are all ingredients in the Kabbalah as well. Among his other vocations, Paracelsus was also a lay preacher. His teacher, Trithemius, was a Benedictine monk and an abbot. Trithemius's other notable student, Heinrich Cornelius Agrippa, was an alchemist, but he was also a theologian and lectured on the writings of Johann Reuchlin. And it gets worse than that, but again, we digress. So Clifton continues and he says, The anti-seedliners accuse us two seedliners of using Talmudic teaching when many of them have been trained in seminaries using Kabbalistic theosophical thought. For further information concerning this type of teaching, I will now quote from the New International Dictionary of the Christian Church by, edited by J.D. Douglas under the topic of hermetic books. This collection of writings deals with religious and philosophical subjects and reflects a degree of syncretism with reference to Platonic, Stoic, Neo-Pythagorean, and Eastern religious thought. The collection dates from around the 2nd or 3rd century and is ascribed to Hermes Trismegistus, which represents a later designation for the Egyptian god Toth, who is said to be the source and protector of all knowledge. The literary form of the Hermetic books is basically that of the Platonic dialogue. The single most significant of the several writings is Poimandres which tells of the soul's ascent to God through the various spheres of the planets. Then Clifton responds to this and he says, We find more concerning, we find more concerning this type of teaching in the Nelson's New Illustrated Bible Dictionary under hermeneutics. The principles and methods used to interpret scripture. Bible scholars believe a biblical text must be interpreted according to the language in which it was written, its historical context, the identity and purpose of the author, its literary nature, and the situation to which it was originally addressed. And Clifton says, and we'll address this entire attitude a little later, And Clifton says, this all sounds good, but let's investigate this thing a little deeper from the Illustrated Handbook to All Religions, copyrighted in 1877. 
and excerpts from the preface of the book. The primitive church, for instance, and Clifton is citing this illustrated handbook to all religions, the primitive church, for instance, would appear to be a corgeries, which is a collection or heap of discordant opinions. And this is absolutely true. If you really read the church fathers, this is absolutely true whose very names and titles are almost innumerable. Yet, in fact, there were, but, there were but two great parties, the Orthodox Christian on the one hand, and the heretical on the other. And these later, amidst their infinite varieties, are all reduced to two, the Gnostics, who corrupted the gospel by an admixture of Greek philosophy or Persian Magianism, or both, and the Arians, who themselves, who lost themselves in speculations upon the divine nature, and especially the two natures of Christ. All the controversies of the Reformation hinge again upon the one question of sacramental grace. And in our own times, apart from individual quarrels, eccentricities, and errors, there are but three important differences in matters of doctrine throughout the whole of Christendom namely, the sacramental system of the Greek and Roman churches, the evangelical doctrines of Protestants, and the rationalist of Neologian creed. Now Clifton comments and says, we really need to look into this matter about the Gnostics. We find this in the same book on pages 210 and 216, and I don't necessarily agree with all of this, and I will make a few comments. Simon Magus is generally reputed founder of the Gnostics, and that's something we would not accept. Philo would be a much better candidate. But Gnosticism was nothing else than the philosophical system of the times, leavened with a slight infusion of Judaism, and a still slighter portion of Christianity. It exhibited itself in its early days at Alexandria, whence it spread through Eastern Christendom. Alexandria was at that time the great seat of philosophy. It contained a vast number of Jews, and being the great emporium of trade, it was of course much frequented by the early Christians. Amongst the intellectual idlers of a thriving city, the the Platonic philosophy had superseded the coarse and vulgar forms of the old Egyptian superstition. The Alexandrian Jews were infected with it, for their language was Greek, and many of them had extensive acquaintance with heathen literature. On the other hand, the Platonists studied the Jewish, or we would say Hebrew, scripture, and saw in them traces of pure and sublime theology. Even they asserted that Plato had borrowed from the writings of Moses. Thus, a compromise was attempted between the creeds of Moses and Plato. And Philo was the earliest to attempt that, in writing which survives to us. There was a third element of error in the Persian or Magian doctrines. For Alexandria, to open to the teachings of Greece on the one side was equally exposed to the fantastic theories of Orientalism on the other. And thus, from these three sources, 
the philosophy of Plato, the religion of Moses, and the Magian superstition. A new system was created. This was Gnosticism. It did not arise within the Christian church, but it very soon infected the pure stream of gospel truth. It was unquestionably the most formidable opponent with which the early church had to contend. The Gnostics practiced magic, which they learned from the East. Christianity no sooner appeared than the Gnostics incorporated it into their system, but so as not merely to corrupt, but to subvert it. But they, meaning the Gnostics, taught also that the body of Jesus was a phantom, and that Christ was neither born nor suffered upon the cross. Thus the doctrine of the atonement and of faith in the death of Christ found no place whatever in their system. From St. Paul's first epistle to the Corinthians, it is evident that Gnosticism had already shown itself in Greece. He repeatedly used the term gnosis in a peculiar sense as arrogated by a certain party, referring to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. The Gnostics denied that there was, in any sense, a resurrection of the body. Whatever the Christians said of a resurrection, they interpreted it figuratively. According to them, the Gnostic rose from death to life when he was initiated in their mysteries and made perfect in their knowledge. And I would say that perhaps this is the origin of the born-again heresy. Simon Magus was probably the first of the Gnostics who engrafted the name of Christ into their system. He and his followers maintained that the body of Jesus was a phantom. The sources for this can hardly be contemporary to, to the time of Simon Magus. In, um, in early Christian writings, in the writings of the early church fathers. Simon Magus seems to be the boogeyman for quite a few things. So why wouldn't he be the boogeyman for Gnosticism? We really don't know much about the Gnostics at all until we encounter the writings of Irenaeus. And Irenaeus wrote 140 years after Simon Magus in Gaul so he was hardly an eyewitness. He and his followers, this being the description of Gnosticism, but attributed to Simon Magus, he and his followers maintained that the body of Jesus was a phantom, but they utterly denied the doctrine of his atonement. In fact, when a Christian adopted the Gnostic views, he ceased to be a Christian, for he renounced his faith in a Redeemer and his hope of a resurrection. In the first century, the Church of Christ, with one voice, agreed in this view of the Gnostic system, namely that Gnostics were not Christians. And outside of the recently discovered Nag Hammadi manuscripts, most of what we know from the Gnostics comes to us from the late 2nd century Christian writer Irenaeus, who wrote at length against their heresies. This goes on and says, The Greek philosophy, and particularly the writings of Plato, were the fashionable study, and therefore, we may venture to say, were embraced by the great numbers by whom they were imperfectly understood. And yet something more certain, more religious, was wanted. This the Jews supplied, and Gnosticism was formed. Gnosticism was an attempt 
so far as it assumed the Christian garb, to effect a compromise between the gospel and hedonism as refined by philosophy and leavened with Judaism. From its expiring ashes, Mohammed kindled a new and fiercer flame. Gnosticism with its magic, its angelic powers, its mystical dogmas, its affected contempt of the body and of death, and its real licentiousness was absorbed into the system of the imposter or fanatic of Mecca. And I don't think they really could have known that. in 1877. The the sparse writings I read of Christ and the Apostles in the Quran really weren't related to Gnosticism at all. But I haven't read the entire Quran. Neither have I read the entire body of Gnostic literature. But most of the Gnostic literature that we know of wasn't discovered until the discovery at Nag Hammadi, and I believe that was after 1877, the Nag Hammadi Library, I believe, was discovered in 1945. So these authors really couldn't have known a whole lot about Gnosticism, except for the things that Irenaeus addresses. On the other hand, Islam comes from Judaism. So why wouldn't Gnosticism and Islam be similar? Of course they would be. They both come from Judaism, mixed in with the pagan Greek philosophies and various amounts of other garbage. Now Clifton responds and he says, Jeffrey A. Weekly along with several other anti-seedliners, accused us two seedliners of practicing Talmudic Judaism. Now I ask, who's really practicing the religion of Judaism? Again, on page 488 of the same book, we read this. Anti-Trinitarians. Corinthus was doubtless contemporary with St. John, although he may have been alive after the death of that apostle. He was a Jew who had studied philosophy at Alexandria, but he spent the greater part of his life in Asia Minor. His system was probably a mixture of Judaism, Gnosticism, and Christianity. Irenaeus makes him a complete Gnostic, saying of him, He taught that the world was not made by the Supreme God, but by a certain power, the Demiurgus, separate from him and below him, and ignorant of him. Jesus he supposed not to be born of a virgin, but to be the son of Joseph and Mary, born altogether as other men are. And Corinthus is only known to us from Polycarp and Irenaeus, who were, of course, his adversaries. Any writing attributed to him, however, is mere speculation. Clifton continues with another citation. Next from the same book, we read this on page 500. And this book is the Illustrated Handbook to All Religions. New Platonics, or Ammonians, so-called from Ammonius Saccus, 
who taught with the highest applause in the Alexandrian school, about the conclusion of the second century, around the same time as Irenaeus. This learned man attempted a general reconciliation of all sects, whether philosophical or religious. He maintained that the great principles of all philosophical and religious truth were to be found equally in all sects, sounds like an egalitarian Jew, and that they differed from each other only in their method of expressing them. Ammonius supposed that the true philosophy derived its origin and its consistence from the Eastern nations, that it was taught to the Egyptians by Hermes, that it was brought from them to the Greeks, and preserved in its original purity by Plato, who was the best interpreter of Hermes and the other Oriental sages. He maintained that all the different religions which prevailed in the world were, in their original integrity, conformable to this ancient philosophy, but it unfortunately happened that the symbols and fictions under which, according to the ancient manner, the ancients delivered their precepts and doctrines, were in the process of time erroneously understood, both by priests and people. Taking these principles for granted, Ammonius associated the sentiments of the Egyptians with the doctrines of Plato, and to finish this conciliatory scheme, he so interpreted the doctrines of the other philosophical and religious sects by art, invention, and allegory that they seemed to bear some semblance to the Egyptian and Platonic systems. And let me note that the name Hermes became associated with with interpretation because Hermes was the Greek god who was the, the appointed messenger from Zeus I think originally from Zeus to Hades or the underworld but then he kind of metamorphosized into a messenger for all men the Egyptian idol Toth had basically, I believe, the same function in Egyptian mythology, if I'm not mistaken, to be the messenger between Osiris or Amen or, or, or whatever the chief god of their pantheon was at any particular time. And Toth was the messenger to men. I believe that's how it works. I don't really um, care to memorize the pagan mythologies as well as I know the Bible. When I read all the reading I did in the Greek poets, I was really more concerned with the historical material that was embedded into the poetry than I was with the the, the recantations of mythology, believe me. Now Clifton turns to another source, and he says, we get more on this topic from the Collier's Encyclopedia from 1981, from volume 2. This time we see a Catholic priest bringing into that church the very same thing which the Protestants continue to this day. This quotation will be excerpts from their article about St. Thomas Aquinas. And we admire St. Thomas Aquinas for his position on usury and his teachings in that area. But he certainly had his faults as just another superstitious 
medieval Catholic. From the earliest days, Clifton quoting Collier's encyclopedia, from the earliest days of his teaching, it became apparent to his contemporaries that he was laying the foundations of a veritable revolution in theology and philosophy. His meeting at Orvieto with his fellow Dominican, William of Morbeck, led to William's translation of the writings of Aristotle from Greek originals and to Thomas's series of commentaries in which there is a careful effort to arrive at Aristotle's essential teachings. So Thomas Aquinas is sort of a proto-humanist or one of the early humanists. In summary, Thomas broke sharply from the so-called Augustinian tradition which wasn't right either, which was essentially a form of Neoplatonism, albeit a Platonism in which many Aristotelian notions had found a place. His work represents the renewal of Christian thought in the light of a metaphysic and theology whose conceptual systematization was expressed in terms of the principles of Aristotle. Perhaps the most fundamental change made by him was his extension of Aristotle's doctrine of potency and act to the relation between an essence and the act of existing which actualized it. His philosophical indebtedness to Aristotle should not be minimized. One has only to read his theological works to realize the esteem in which he held the philosopher. And if we read this carefully, we are informed that Augustinian followed Plato and that Thomas Aquinas broke from him by following Aristotle. That's basically what the article is telling us. Now Clifton quotes from another source and he says, We find even more in the Encyclopedia Britannica in the ninth edition in 1894, volume 11, pages 664 and 665, concerning hermeneutics. He, referring to Hillel, Hillel was a medieval rabbi, he was also the first to formulate definite rules by which the rabbinical development of the law should proceed. These canons of interpretation were seven in number, afterwards increased by Rabbi Ismail to thirteen, by the addition of seven new rules and the omission of the sixth, and looked to the construction of biblical warrant for precepts which it was wished to prove implicit in the law. This regard for it, which was never wholly disowned, ultimately took shape in the improved rabbinical hermeneutics of the Middle Ages. In the writings of such rabbis as Sadius Gaon, Yarki, Rashi, Kimchi, Maimonides, Abarbanel, a line of expositors extending from the 10th to the 16th century, we find alongside it the traditional rules and explanations, alongside the traditional rules and explanations, we find a scientific recognition of the interpreter's duty to give the literal sense as well as a practical application of the principles of grammatical and historical exegesis to the Old Testament. The hermeneutics developed among the Hellenistic Jews had marked characteristics of its own, 
These interpreters, departing from the exclusiveness of rabbinical devotion to the Old Testament revelation, and from the pure Hebraism of the native Jews, which we would call into question because Jews were never pure Hebrews, brought to the study of the sacred books a range of ideas derived from Hellenistic culture. They had to devise a hermeneutical procedure which would harmonize their new ethnic learning with the traditional estimate of the Jewish, or really Hebrew, scriptures. To the Theosophic Hellenist, and especially to the Alexandrian Jew, which is actually an Alexandrian Judean, unless they happen to be Edomites, and it was probably difficult to tell them apart, and we will never tell them apart. Acceptance of the plain sense was often an impossibility. This is important to the Theosophic Hellenist, and especially to the Alexandrian Jew, acceptance of the plain sense, meaning the plain word of Scripture, was often an impossibility. A reconciliation was sought by the use of allegorical interpretation. This method was also pursued by the rabbinical exegetes, the rabbis performing biblical exegesis. It is embraced in the halakhic hermeneutics and is seen in the distinctions drawn by Palestinian Jews between the body and the soul of the text. The Corypheus in this hermeneutical practice was Philo, born perhaps about 20 BC. Although he had predecessors in Aristobulus, who was born in 180 BC, Josephus and others. And here our article has a a critical error because Josephus came after Philo. Josephus wasn't born until about 50 years after Philo. So this is a serious error. Perhaps maybe some of Josephus' sources could be accounted this hermeneutical practice, but not Josephus himself. He devoted himself mainly to the exposition of the Pentateuch with the view of explaining the realism and anthropomorphism of the Old Testament in a way to suit the philosophy of the time, referring to the Alexandrian Jew. Wishful to retain the Alexandrian Jew's regard for Moses as the supremely inspired prophet of God and the oracle of all mysteries along with the adherence to the current Platonism and Theosophy, he opposed that the Mosaic writings contained a twofold mode of teaching, a popular representation of God and divine things, and a spiritual. On the other hand, so we see where that idea of something physical only being spiritual comes from, it comes from the Gnostics. On the other hand, As extraordinary development was given in the rabbinical hermeneutics by the Kabbalists of the Middle Ages, who used the devices of artificial interpretation in order to find an Old Testament basis for their mixed Neoplatonist, Gnostic, and Sabaean culture, the Kabbalah, 
which means what has been received or tradition, had its roots in the ancient doctrine of numbers, for which the Jews were probably indebted to the Chaldeans, by the combinations and permutations of letters, the interchange of words of equal numerical value with similar artifices. New meanings were extracted where the proper sense seemed so poor, and acceptable meanings were found where offense was felt, and Clifton underlines parts of this. New meanings were extracted where offense was felt. It could be argued that the word hermeneutics, as it is used in modern seminaries, is from the Greek word hermenia, which is an interpretation, and it does. However, we have also established here, in our presentations of Martin Luther's On the Jews and Their Lies, that rabbis, presumably converted to Christianity, were a tremendous influence on Luther's theological thought, as Luther himself admitted following them as sources for biblical interpretation on many occasions, and that these same rabbis, namely Nicholas of Lyra and Paul of Burgos, both of them converso Jews, had written Bible commentaries, which were the most widely read commentaries of medieval Christian Europe. These rabbis, being trained Talmudists, certainly would have used this Jewish hermetics in their biblical interpretations and spread that into their supposedly Christian commentaries. This is the foundation upon which modern Protestantism and its own biblical interpretations have developed. This is also why, in part, Protestantism has always been friendly to the Jews. A theologian at the University of Cologne, as Luther was launching the Reformation, Heinrich Cornelius Agrippa is credited with having said in a defense of his sermons based on the works of Johann Reuschlin that his Christian faith was not incompatible for his appreciation for Jewish thought. And he wrote, and I quote, I am a Christian, but I do not dislike Jewish rabbis. Even Luther did not awaken to Jewish treachery until very late in his life and published his diatribe against the Jews in 1543, less than three years before his death. This is food for thought. Now, citing another article from the same source, Clifton says, We will now see more on how the Jewish Kabbalah fits into this thing from Encyclopedia Britannica, the ninth edition, 1894, from volume 13, on page 822. To obtain these heavenly mysteries, which alone make the Torah superior to profane codes, definite hermeneutical rules are employed, of which the following are the most important. The words of several verses in the Hebrew Scriptures which are regarded as containing a recondite or hard-to-understand sense are placed over each other, and the letters are formed into new words by reading them vertically. The words of the text are arranged in squares in such a manner 
as to be read either horizontally, I'm sorry, either vertically or boustrophedon, which means alternate, alternately from right to left and left to right. The words are joined together and redivided is the third method. The fourth, the initial and final letters of several words are formed into separate words. Every letter, the fifth, every letter of a word is reduced to its numerical value and the word is explained by another of the same quantity. And then the sixth way that the rabbis interpret the Old Testament, every letter of a word is taken to be the initial or abbreviation of a word, so they could add whatever they want in with it. And the seventh, the 22 letters of the alphabet are divided into two halves, one half placed above the other, and the two letters which thus become associated are interchanged. By this permutation, Aleph, the first letter of the alphabet, becomes Lamed, the twelfth letter. Beth becomes Mem, and so on. This cipher alphabet is called Album, from the first interchangeable pairs. And then the eighth way that the rabbis interpret the Old Testament. The commutation back and forth of the twenty-two letters is affected by the last letter of the alphabet taking the place of the first. But last the last but one, meaning the next to last, the place of the second, and so forth. This cipher is called Atbash. These hermeneutical canons are much older than the Kabbalah. They obtained in the synagogues from time immemorial and were used by the Christian fathers in the interpretation of Scripture. Thus, Canon 5, according to which a word is reduced to its numerical value and interpreted by another word of the same value, is recognized in the New Testament by the Christian fathers. Clifton now responds to all of this and he says, I don't know whether or not you fully fathom the significance of what you have just read. For if this is true about Jewish hermeneutics and the Kabbalah, they have wrongly interpreted or even changed some of the meanings of the Hebrew Scriptures with their Chaldean hocus-pocus. Not only that, but some of the early church fathers followed this system of interpretation to some degree. Is it any wonder, then, that we have occasional difficult and questionable Bible passages to deal with? With some passages... We then have to wonder whether what we are reading is Yahweh breathed or is some lying divination by a false scribe. And Clifton citing several passages, Ezekiel 13.6, Jeremiah 14.14, and Zechariah 10.2. We would add Jeremiah chapter 8 verse 8 to the list. We are instructed in Scripture to verify everything with witnesses. So when we encounter a difficult passage, we need to consider the context in which it is written. When we consider what we know today as so-called Christianity, learning that it is an admixture of Aristotelian logic, Jewish hermeneutics, Greek philosophy, Persian Magianism, Judaism, Platoism, or actually that should say Platonism, Gnosticism, Eastern Mysticism, Spinozaism, Maimonidesism, and Kabbalism. What should we make of all this? Do you now comprehend why we must do as our Messiah taught and start all over again from the beginning, becoming like a child? The scriptures truly describe our righteousness as filthy rags. Citing Isaiah 64.
Clifton then quotes Matthew chapter 6, verses 22 and 23, and he says, The light of the body is the eye. If therefore thine eye be single, thy whole body shall be full of light. But if thine eye be evil, thy whole body shall be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in thee be darkness, how great is that darkness? This is comparable, Clifton says. This is comparable to a person who, learning the true identity message, keeps one eye looking back to the Aristotelian, philosophized, Gnosticized, Judaized, Kabbalahized, and Eastern mysticized, corrupted form of Christianity. We cannot live in both of these worlds at the same time, for a mind that is divided, or afflicted with double vision, is in total darkness. The Bible tells us further, in James chapter 1, a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. It is not speaking of the physical eye, but the eye of the mind. Just because your preacher may be blinded by his seminary training, that is no reason you need to be blinded also. Not only is our eye to be single, but if we have two eyes, eyes of the mind, one seeing true light and one seeing evil wisdom, we are to pluck out the one seeing evil, as we are instructed at Matthew 5.29. And if thy right eye offend thee, pluck it out, and cast it from thee, for it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not that thy whole body should be cast into Gehenna. Gehenna. The fiery trials of this life, as opposed to Hades, or the abyss, or the pit. The result of having two eyes, Clifton says, is to have two masters, and being a slave to both, in that way, a man will not amount to much for either. Men might work for two employers, but no slave can be the property of two owners. One is either in Yahweh's employ or in Satan's. If the mind's eye be full of Greek philosophy, Persian Magianism, Judaism, Platonism, Gnosticism, Eastern Mysticism, Spinozaism, Maimonidesism, and Kabbalism, like those who are taught in seminaries, what good are they to the Almighty? I am fully persuaded that this one seed only teaching is coming from students trained in seminaries or by people under their influence. Manley P. Hall, in his An Encyclopedic, Masonic, Hermetic, Kabbalistic, and Rosicrucian Symbolic Philosophy, on page 114, shows that Hermeticism is considered synonymous with Kabbalism, and that the tenets of Hermeticism are interwoven with Kabbalism. The theories of Kabbalism are inextricably interwoven with the tenets of alchemy, Hermeticism, Rosicrucianism, and Freemasonry. The words Kabbalism and Hermeticism are now considered as synonymous terms, covering all the arcana and esotericism of antiquity. The simple Kabbalism of the first centuries of the Christian era gradually evolved into an elaborate theological system which became so involved that it was next to impossible to comprehend its dogma. With all this, Clifton says, one can now better understand 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verses 19 through 31 and Romans chapter 1 verse 21.
and Romans chapter 1 verse 21 says, because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were they thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. And from 1 Corinthians from verse 19, we may read, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? And I won't quote the entire passage, but we get the drift. We know today, and first let me say that evidently Manly P. Hall also took the lies of the Jews for granted, that the Kabbalah predates the 12th century, when it clearly does not. However, it is derived from other philosophies which are of much greater antiquity, such as Neoplatonism and other forms of Eastern mysticism. But for our purposes here, that is immaterial. While some of the descriptions of modern Bible hermeneutics seem logical enough, in their application is found the systemization of deception embedded in rabbinical hermeneutics. Another thing that we could say with certainty is that modern Christians today and we've encountered this in, in many disputes in social media, in forums, and, and in other venues. Modern Christians, and especially those who are trained in Bible schools, whether Catholic or Protestant, do indeed cite Augustine and Thomas Aquinas to make their points about Scripture. And here we have seen that Augustine and Thomas Aquinas, they follow Aristotle and Plato in their understanding of Scripture. How the hell can you follow a pagan Greek philosopher to understand the Word of God? That's like trying to follow a whore as an example of chastity. It don't work. Wow. That's what the Catholic Church is built on. Note where Clifton had cited the 1894 edition of the Encyclopedia Britannica, where it said in reference to the Kabbalah that by the combinations and permutations of letters, the interchange of words of equal numerical value and similar artifices, new meanings were extracted where the proper sense seemed poor and acceptable meanings were found where offense was felt. And this is how, this isn't how the scripture was changed. No, the scripture wasn't really changed in that way. There are corruptions to scripture that are old. And most of those we can find, or, or, or most of those we can deduce through the fact that they don't have any witnesses elsewhere in scripture, or that they, they conflict with other things in scripture, or that we have conflicting manuscript evidence. Genesis chapter 4 verse 1 is a perfect example of that. But this is how the Jews interpreted scripture. And that interpretation did indeed carry 
into the medieval church and into modern Protestantism and modern Catholicism. But we're more concerned with Protestantism here in Christian identity in America. So if, in the result of one's hermeneutics, the word seed does not really mean seed, and a father is something other than an ancestor, and a bastard is something other than a mongrel, all that some party or class of individuals won't have their feelings hurt, then we must know that someone has employed the Jewish manner of hermeneutics which Clifton has described here. This is what the anti-seedliners have done. This is what they do all the time. They have followed the treachery of the Jews so that Christians are led to believe that Satan really doesn't exist. But in truth, Satan is all around us. The result today is that Christians worship Satan, which is, in part, the Jews themselves, rather than worshiping Jesus. And the anti-seedliners are just as guilty as this of this as the denominational sects had been. And this is how. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and good night. We will be here tomorrow night with Flat Earth Bible Verses. That's a joke, (laughs) but that is tomorrow night's program, Flat Earth Bible Verses. When you convert, well, I'm sorry, when when you consider the Flat Earth and the Hollow Earth, you end up with a bagel, and that's exactly what it is.